Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there, you are listening to episode 199 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Thank you so much for tuning into this show. I was reflecting on our relationship and I've been doing this for three and a half years, almost closer to four years now. And I'm very grateful for all the wonderful feedback that you guys have been providing me. And as a way to say thank you, please shoot me an email at drmaali at sexologypodcast.com or contact me on my social media account, which on Instagram you can find me at sexologypodcast and let me know what was the favorite episode for you or perhaps let me know what was the sex advice you got from us and you will enter to win a $50 Amazon gift card. I'm raffling it this coming weekend and you have until October 23rd to contact us and let us know about that. Your chances are high because I just decided on doing this raffle last week. So it's not going to be thousands of thousands of people in this raffle. And just a way for me to say I love you and thank you so much for showing your support to this show. I'm very excited about our topic today. Our guest is Dr. Shermer Sillers. A few months ago, I read Dr. Tina's book and in her book she talks about religious shame and also she talks about what we can do to maintain our faith but also improve our relationship with sexuality. I highly recommend her book. You can find the link in the show notes to her bio but this topic has been Dr. Tina's life work. Dr. Tina is a sex therapist, former professor of marriage and family therapy at Seattle Pacific University, founder of Northwest Institute on Intimacy, ASAC certified supervisor, mother, wife, and author. Dr. Tina is a vibrant thought leader around issues of sexuality, intimacy, and spirituality. Her life's work is centered around rooting out the causes of sexual shame and providing tools that disarm and demystify all the negative messages that we receive in American culture and so often in religious circles. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Dr. Tina Shermer-Sillers in our show. Tina, welcome to our show. Thank you. So glad to be here. I am very excited about this conversation. I loved your book and I thought like you had a very interesting perspective on the concept of the relationship between faith and sexuality. So tell us, how did you get interested in this topic? Yeah, well, I taught at a religiously based university for almost 30 years in the graduate marriage and family therapy program in a master's program. You didn't need to have a religious orientation to be in the graduate program. It was a co-amped accredited 
program, but it did tend to attract some people with a faith perspective. And during the bulk of the time that I was there teaching, I taught the graduate level human sexuality course, which is a required course for licensure. And so from about 1992 until, gosh, 2019, I taught that course. So for quite a long time. And one of the assignments I had my students do was write their sexual autobiography. And, you know, a lot of people will hear me say that and they'll be like, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine committing my sexual story to paper. But if you're going to be a therapist, you're only ever as good a therapist as you know what your own story is. And we have multiple narratives, multiple stories that live in our lives, in our personhood. And when you live in America, where we haven't had comprehensive sex education for well over 40 years, and even before that, we had a very thin layer of comprehensive sex education, people really don't have a thick narrative, an understanding of their sexual story. And so asking the students to write their sexual narrative, I would give them anywhere from 60 to 70 questions, walking them through their family of origin, maybe through three generations, just really asking them to think about how they learned about sexuality and gender and affection and asking them just to reflect so that they could put their story into narrative form. And as they did that, they could reflect on how did they learn about sexuality and body and relationships and intimacy and where did those ideas come from? And then how did their own sexuality unfold through their childhood, adolescence and young adulthood? And what was this legacy that they were then holding on to? And what were their implicit biases as they were going into the field of psychotherapy and family therapy and couples therapy because they were being marriage and family therapists? They didn't often take the sexuality course until near the end of their program. So many of them had been through family of origin courses. They'd been through gender courses already. And so sexuality is a really heated topic. And so many of them had done work in other courses, written other kinds of narrative type papers. So when they got to this one, they were already, they heard about it. They knew they were going to have to write it. And so they had worked out some of their other stuff before they got there. But many of them would say that this was one of the most difficult papers that they wrote in all of graduate school, where they wrote well over 300 papers. It would take me anywhere from an hour to two hours to read these papers, each of them. Oh, wow. And I was just stunned by what I learned about their lives. But one of the things I noticed happened right around the year 2000 was there what became a dramatic increase in the amount of what I began to call sexual shame and religious sexual shame. So what that looked like was just severe condemnation about themselves and self-hatred about themselves and their bodies. 
what they had done and not done in their lives, what they had felt, what they had desired sexually and wanted. And yet an incredible naivete about the normalcy of those desires and of those actions and thoughts and feelings. Like they didn't know that that was a normal thing to developmentally grow into and want and then later do. So we began to see the effect of abstinence education, which began to get funded in the early 80s and then really swept across the the United States by the early 90s and was a part of our public education program as well as a part of the broader conservative churches across the United States. And, And so as I was reading these papers and watching this shift and the amount of self-hatred and, and condemnation and, and self-judgment, I, I was just really struck by how much pain and suffering these kids were in, young adults were in, and then also how it was manifesting in their lives. So I was seeing erectile dysfunction, pelvic pain disorders, things I had never seen in kids in their 20s before. And then compulsive sexual disorders as well that I hadn't seen in in kids in their 20s before. So I began to ask more questions, trying to understand what was it that was happening in their adolescent lives that was creating this shift that I hadn't seen in the 10 years prior. And that's where I began to slowly put together that this was the first cohort of students that was getting faced with the abstinence-only teachings, which we later came to learn was 80% medically inaccurate and was all fear-based, of course. And then those that were a part of conservative religious backgrounds were getting another dose of teaching in their youth groups and in their religious groups, wherever they were, you know, learning this in their churches or communities around the United States. There were dramatic shifts and things that happened beginning in about 1981 to 85 that just began to increase across the United States. That was socio-political. I love that that hearing about that trend because that makes sense. You know, what I when we think about kind of like the relationship with sexuality, you think like the later generations, perhaps they have more positive information about sexuality and you become more sex positive. I can imagine even like when I'm, I, my situation is a little bit different. I grew up in Iran. My mom was very open-minded and she was in her teenage years and 60s and 70s. And the experience that she had with her sexuality was very different than the experience I had as someone who grew up later. And it's interesting that you're talking about the impact the policy kind of globally how does that translate to individuals relationship with their sexuality and how can that impact one's kind of sexual functioning mm-hmm. and you know sometimes we hear this message that this with purity cultures that you know like maybe you're not okay to have kind of masturbate have positive sexuality with yourself you're saving yourself for marriage and after you're getting married you're welcome to kind of lean into sexual pleasure and with my concern conservative clients, it 
it's not my experience that that works that way. No, <laughs> Signing on paper right. does not change anything. Mm-mm. So become a, it becomes a lifelong challenge. So it's wonderful that you wrote this book kind of like wanting to share this information with that generation. Is that the audience you had in mind? Yes, I did. What I really wanted was to help help people understand what had happened sociopolitically, both in recent years, but also to give a much broader historical look as well, so that they could see that actually, for people that had a conservative faith perspective, that actually, it was never meant to be sex negative. I really answer, there are a couple of questions that I needed to answer for myself and for my clients and for my students. And that was because so much of this was rooted in the Western Christian narrative. This is where the the roots of this was, you know, it was in, in this American, quote unquote, Christianity, right, that had shaped so much of American thought. So I asked the question, well, had, had Christianity in America always been sex negative or had it ever had a positive, you know, arc, an, a positive idea? And so I really traced the, the arc, the thought along looking for something positive. And I knew things about the ministry of the prophet of Jesus. Like I knew that he was body positive. I knew he was all people positive. He was justice positive, you know, woman positive. He was, you know, all of these things. But had there ever been an ethic, a sexual ethic that had come out of that ministry? So I really went looking for it. And what I learned was that the sexual ethic that became the root of Christianity was birthed out of the fourth century. It never really came out of the ministry of Jesus. And what happened in the fourth century was there had been in the first, second, and third centuries all this warring, you know, the the early Christians were just trying to survive, right? They were getting persecuted and they were just trying to survive. And in the fourth century, Constantine, who was an emperor, he became a Christian. He had all the power, right? He was an emperor, and then he became, becomes a Christian of this new religion. And so he has the power then to appoint bishops or leaders of this new church. Well, at that particular time, the men, because it was men, who were vying for power, the way they were vying for power was by denying the body. And through denying the body, they were demonstrating who was more spiritual than someone else. Now, that didn't have anything to do with Jesus' ministry. Jesus never did that. But that's what was happening in the fourth century. So in 312, 350, you know, somewhere around there, these men were all saying, I'm more spiritual than you because I can deny my body more than you can. And so they were all doing this. And so it became this ethic of who was more spiritual than someone else. And when they couldn't do it, when they couldn't deny the body, whether it was food, water, sex, any pleasures of the body, they blamed women for it. Fascinating. How so? Well, because they were the temptress. What were they wearing? How were they adorning themselves? Mm -hmm. Right? 
And that's what we still do to this day, mm-hmm. right? When a woman is raped, we say, well, what were you wearing? Were mm-hmm. you drinking, right? We right. still do that exact same thing today. And so that became the ethic of this of the Christian church in the fourth century. And right around the 11th century, we made celibacy the thing in the, the Roman Catholic church. Right. That was the first church. Okay. And in the Christian organized religion. So that's what I learned became that was the Christian sexual ethic, even though that had nothing to do with Jesus, who the religion was originally based on. So once I answered that question, then I needed to answer the question, well, I think faith is a wonderful thing in people's lives because it gives people what it gives people hope in an existential hope. Right. Right. And there's many different faiths around the world that are wonderful. So then I thought, I don't believe people need to choose between their sexuality and their spirituality. And I believe that our sexuality is a wonderful gift, no matter who you want to thank for it. I think it's a wonderful gift. So then I thought, well, on that line, on the Abrahamic line, so for people who embrace a monotheistic faith, has there ever been something positive around sexuality? So then I I set that side, you know, I said, okay, so Christianity did that. Jesus was body positive, was sexuality positive, was women positive, was all person positive. So on that Abrahamic line, because he was a Jew, did they have any writing? Did the Jews have any writing that was positive? And so then I got deep into Jewish writing and Jewish mystic writing. And I found these beautiful stories that compared the love making to the co-creation of all of the universe that when you bring the masculine and feminine energies that are in all people together in love that you co-create love together and that's what you're doing when you make love when you come together with love and respect and honor you co-create more love in the universe how you do that how you bring it together and that all people bear that possibility that they bear that kind of ability to bring that kind of love, that kind of honor to each other because they bear the image of the divine. All people bear the image of the divine and they bear the capacity to love. And in loving, they create more of that power that actually is the same power that created the universe and that we can do that together in our ability to love each other. And that's what we do when we make love with that kind of commitment to truly love each other. And there were there are story after story after story that I found and I put them I put like eight of them in the book and I had never heard of any of them Mm -hmm. when I found them. But I that to me was part of what I needed to do was to give to people who had found themselves so hurt Mm -hmm. by what the church had done to them is to be able to say to them. Oh, you weren't meant to get sex negative stories. You actually were given a wonderful history and you just weren't handed it. So here it is. And you don't ever have to choose between your faith and your sexuality if you don't want to. You know, you actually were given your sexuality on purpose and it is there to bless you and bless whoever you want 
to share it with if you want to share it with anybody, but you don't have to share it with anybody, you know? And that's what I think I needed to do for myself in order to also give something back to the people that were hurting who I was sitting with. What a beautiful story and what a gift that you gave to the generation that was exposed to the, all of this sex negative information. And I'm kind of curious how you got access to those literatures because I think it's just so rare because when you think religion, you think sin and sinfulness and, you know, masturbation is bad and all of those negativity that comes with kind of like some of those religious messages. And I, I agree with you that in my client, I can see that faith is a source of support for them when they are feeling very hopeless they pray 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 is their coping strategy and they want to hold on to those sense of hope but right. also like they want to lean into pleasure so it's wonderful that you said there is not necessarily need for people to choose one or other how can people mediate those messages so they think about okay i want to remain in my religion but also i want to be able to open the door to kind of releasing the sexual religious shame yeah with the book what i what i did is i like i said i i asked the question had had christianity ever been sex positive and when I found that it hadn't, but that on the Abrahamic line, there had been a whole lot there that was. And then during the 11 years that it took me to write the book and do the research, I did a, a lot of work with people and I did some evidence-based research around what was creating healing. And I came up with a model for healing religious sexual shame. And I call it healing the mess, the model for erasing sexual shame. And there are four different things that you kind of do over and over again. It's sort of circular that helps you unpack and kind of melt away the sexual shame. And I call it frame, name, claim, and aim. And frame is you get yourself a frame or a scaffolding of sex education, of body education, and relationship education, because this is what our culture doesn't give you, mm -hmm. right? And so what we do give you is so much mythology about bodies and relationship and other that we don't really know what's true and what isn't, but we do have a lot of good information that has been written, that's on websites. And like we at the Northwest Institute on Intimacy, which is an institute that I run, we have on our website oh, like 150 resources just for the public on books and movies and organizations and stuff that you can go to to just start getting that information so that you can find out what's actually true, which starts to then help you go, oh, wow, like, I'm cool. Like these things about my body are amazing, you know, and it just helps you let go of some of those things that have been trapping you for so long. So that's frame name is begin to tell your story to empathic and compassionate other or group of others. And this really comes from a lot of Brene Brown's work around shame, that shame grows in silence, but it, it begins to disappear 
when we start to share it with others. I've traveled the country speaking on this stuff. And I'll ask people all the time, did you, if you grew up in a home that was largely silent or silent and shaming around sexuality, raise your hand. And 95% of people grew up in homes that were silent or silent and shaming. So you are not alone. And so when you find caring, compassionate others to say, here's what it was like to grow up in my family, you know, you're like, oh, wow, you know, I'm not alone, you know, and you can hear each other and go, gosh, that must have been really hard. And wow, this is what it was like to have my period and not have anybody there or to have a wet dream and not know what that was or to be so ashamed that I was masturbating too much, but to find out that it was actually fine, you know, or whatever, you know, and it just feels so good to just have people hear you and see you and tell you that you're wonderful exactly the way you are and nothing is wrong with you, you know, that you're fearfully and wonderfully made no matter how you are, right? And that's what we all need to hear. We need to know that we're seen, known, loved, and accepted just the way we are, right? We don't have to apologize for anything and we just don't get enough of that. So that's the name part. The claim part is beginning to claim our bodies as good. One of my favorite most recent books that I read was by Sonia Renee Taylor, and it's called Your Body is Not an Apology. Oh, and, nice. um, I haven't read that book. It, it is so good. And I love her work. And she has an organization with the same name. And, you know, so when you grow up in our culture that makes money on making us feel badly about our bodies and who we are, we're constantly apologizing for everything about us. You don't need to apologize for anything about you. We are supposed to be different from each other. No matter how you're put together, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are good. And we need to help each other learn how to claim ourselves as good, whether we're neurodiverse or neurotypical, whether we're able-bodied or whether we're bodied differently, whether we're tall, whether we're short, whether we're fat, whether we're thin, whether we're whatever, it is all good. If we are breathing, we are good and we are beautiful and we need to help each other learn to embrace that so that we don't go to our deathbed wishing we had learned to love ourselves and love life. But man, when we are getting you know, 3,000 messages a day mm -hmm. telling us otherwise, it's really hard. So that's claim, just really working hard to claim ourselves as this is a good body, you know. So that's frame, name, and claim. And as we do that work of frame, name, and claim, what we end up doing is we are aiming for a new legacy, a new sexual legacy, so that our kids or the little ones in our life, when they're asked, what was it like to grow up in your family? They can say, I had people talking about sexuality and bodies and what it was like in my life. 
all over the place. And they were telling me, oh, this is a normal part of you. And oh, yeah, that's happened to me. And people were talking about bodies and sexualities, just like they were talking about spaghetti and brushing their teeth and you need to make your bed. And, you know, they were just talking about because it was a normal part of life, no different than anything else, no better, no worse. It wasn't given more weight or less weight. It just was a part of who you are and a part of how you kept yourself healthy, you know, and age, you know, you were given age appropriate information. That's where we need to go because that's actually the best way that we keep our kids healthy and protected and aware and able to see warning signs and how they're getting exploited because right now they will get exploited, right? Because it's everything is all around them. And if we don't equip them, they will get exploited. They will get taken advantage of. So we have to know how to give them the information that they need without scaring them, without just, you know, we just need to say, yep, this is what's going on. This is your body and this is how things are changing and it's wonderful and you're wonderful. But so many people aren't equipped. Well, what a great, wonderful frame that you created. And I'm hearing that it has like multiple aspects, but specifically you're healing yourself and your shame story and your past, but also you are part of creating the solution for future generations. So you're interrupting the cycle. I love this incorporation of kind of talking about shame story and also kind of like what, what do you want your legacy to be? These are our wonderful techniques and solutions for people to kind of lean into. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's what I think so many of us in this field, and I'm sure you too, are really trying to do. Mm-hmm. We're trying to turn the ship, right? And really help people see their sexuality as a wonderful part of themselves. And then how to just move from where they are into a healing place so that they too can make a difference not only in their own lives, but in the lives of the people around them too. And what a gift. Again, I, I, I love this work that you help people to kind of hold on to their faith, but also welcome pleasure and sexuality in their life and kind of this inclusive approach to that. That doesn't mean like if you are uh, want to follow your religion, then you have to kind of believe on these things and say no to pleasure, which is really, really powerful. So I appreciate that you've been doing this work so if our listeners want to kind of get a hold of you your workshop they want to work with you tina what are some of the places they can find you yeah so i have a website that is my name so tina shermersellers.com and that's a place where you can learn a lot about me and then i run an institute that is the Northwest Institute on Intimacy. The website is nwioi.com. And there you'll learn about where we train professionals. We also run retreats for couples who really want to try to do some healing around how the culture has affected them, how to get more intimacy into their relationship, how to integrate sexuality and spirituality in their lives. So um, that's a place to learn about that too. It's also a place where we have resources for the public on my website as well. I've got some free webinars and stuff for the public 
to there is a community-based website that I started many years ago called thankgodforsex.org where people where they if they come from a conservative background and it was modeled after it gets better project that Dan Savage and his partner Terry Miller started Uh where you can hear people just tell video stories of what it was like to grow up in their home and how they have worked to get to a place where they thank God for sex. So it's a lot of people of faith who just say, here's what it was like to grow up in my home and here's what I've done to heal and here's where I am now. And we did that because we found that so many people weren't talking about what it was like. They were so silent. And so we thought we can get people to tell their story and you can heal too. And you can see your sexuality is a good thing. So that's a place where you can go to hear people's stories. And we also have some community meetings where people are talking about shame and they're talking about being single and they're talking about, we have one on adult sex ed that you can listen to and get kind of a lesson on adult sex ed. So it's kind of a fun website then you can also follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina Shameless Sex. And then Northwest Institute on Intimacy is also another Instagram place. And then my book is, what is my book? Um, <laughs> You're talking about title? Yes. Sex, God, and Conservative <laughs> yeah, <thank> Church. <laughs> Sex, God, and the Conservative Church, Erasing Shame from Sexual Intimacy. Yeah. And, that, and I'm really proud of that book because we do a lot in the really short span of pages and so it's like four books in one but it's not a really thick book um, and I'm really really proud of it it gives a lot of touch and non-touch practices that people can do in their lives which is kind of fun it's written both for the person who's experienced it but it's also written for therapists and doctors because what I was hearing from people was they would go see a therapist who hadn't ever worked with somebody from a faith background and they didn't feel like they understood them. Mm-hmm. And so I would be like, take them this book, tell them to read it and they'll understand you. And so I kind of wrote it for both, both kinds, you know, both situations because where we were at the time, there really wasn't cultural competency yet built up for mm-hmm. therapists and physicians yet to understand why so many people had been hurt inadvertently, but hurt nonetheless by the church. So, and the book is going to come out on audio probably in about two or three months. Oh, so, nice. Looking yeah. forward to it. And I recommend it to clients and I recommend it to our listeners if they okay. would like to explore kind of like their relationship with sexuality, but they have a conservative background or you're their therapist. I know many of our listeners are therapists and they want to kind of have more competency working with this population. Tina, thank you so much for being so generous with the oh. information and sharing your expertise with us and hope to have you back on our show in future oh thank you thank you so much for having me it's a lot of fun I hope you found our conversation useful and it gave you good information about how you can still honor your religion while you are incorporating a sex positive perspective. If you are listening this, to this show, thank you so much for listening to this show. I would be very 
grateful if you take a moment and if you find this show useful, write us an honest review in iTunes. It will help this show to rank higher in iTunes and we will be able to reach a broader audience. And I would be thrilled and excited to hear your perspective of what you want more of in this show. I hope you guys have a lovely week and we'll talk next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.